I did a lot of stealing, breaking and entering in people's homes. You're how old? Eight, nine, going on 10. Joel Ware grew up in New Orleans. His older brother, David, taught him how to cut grass, which is what he was doing when he met these two older guys, brothers, named Corey and Steli. One day, Joel went with them to rob a gas station. I cut class, caught the bus from Lower Ninth Ward all the way to the West Bank, and they handed me a handkerchief, told me to cover my face up. Corey had a little revolver. It was 22, and I don't even think they had any bullets in it. Joel had never held a gun before. He was 10 years old. So do you remember, like, what was your reaction when they handed you this gun? Oh, there was no reaction. I mean, I was, it was one of those things where you, was, you just felt like you was a part of something. They sent me in because I was young. I walked into the store, and it was an old lady. I told her, give me all your money. And she just froze and looked at me. They came in behind me, and they had bandanas on everywhere. One of them had a hood on. And they were talking to her, telling her, the little guy's not playing, you know, we're sticking you up. The lady was nervous, and so was Joelle. He kept thinking about something his mother always said, respect the ladies. And he thought, what if this lady knows my mom? And I kept doing this. I kept making sure my the bandana was covering my face, you know? And I was, I, I was nervous, yeah. It, there was no tough guy about it. You know, I, I just was following through, you know? I know she put a rows of quarters in the bag. Lottery scratch tickets were out. I remember grabbing some of those, and we ran. Here's what 10-year-old Joelle learned that day. Robbing, he was good at it. I felt like it was nothing, I felt like it was easy. It's like, oh, that was it? That's what that was about? You know, I felt like it was doable. There's a word we've used for kids like Joelle, super predator. Dangerous kids, born bad, America's biggest fear. But maybe we have it wrong. Maybe they're kids. I'm Eve Abrams. This is Unprisoned. Is this radio that it, this is going to be? So um, maybe you'll have a picture of him, but, but Joel is, like, ridiculously handsome. Like, he's just one of those, like, good-looking folks. He's very warm and engaging and is quick to smile. I think he was a model at some point. He was a hugger, for sure. Big arms! You know, like, hey, Rebecca! I am the chief public defender for New Orleans, and how did I meet Joel? Let's sing. I was the associate director of the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana. And what's your name? Derwin Bunton. My name is Rebecca Kendig. I'm a social worker in New Orleans. I've long worked in the criminal justice system. Back in the 1990s, when Joel was robbing people, there was a national push to be tough on crime. It was a few years before a Princeton professor named John Diulio coined the term super predators, kids who were, quote, radically impulsive and brutally remorseless. Hillary Clinton famously used the term in a 1996 speech. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. Diulio predicted crime would spike because of these so-called super predators. Instead, juvenile crime went down, a lot. And things were changing. Scientists were learning much more about how brains work, specifically how in teenagers' brains, the parts in charge of judgment are still growing. Developments in psychology and brain science continue to show fundamental differences 
between juvenile and adult minds. This is what the Supreme Court said around a decade after the super predator myth was invented. First, children have a lack of maturity and an underdeveloped sense of responsibility, leading to recklessness, impulsivity, and heedless risk-taking. Second, they can't just up and move if they live in a house or neighborhood or city where crime or violence are easy to come by. And third, a child's character is not as well-formed as an adult's. The Supreme Court said, for all these reasons, kids shouldn't be treated like adults. Our decisions rested not only on common sense, on what any parent knows, but on science and social science as well. Diulio later regretted creating the idea of the super predator, which helped put so many children in prison. In fact, he promised to spend the rest of his life, quote, helping bring caring, responsible adults to wrap their arms around these kids. But super predators stuck. Fox 8 News starts now. This was on the news 20 years after Hillary Clinton's speech. Four teenagers carjacked two cars in a New Orleans suburb. The teens were 15 and 16. Sheriff Newell Norman says all four teens have extensive criminal backgrounds, some with violent charges. These children need to be put away. These are predators, and they're acting like predators, and we need to treat them like predators. Crimes committed by kids usually go down like this, in a group, often older kids teaching younger kids how to do it. It was like that for Joel. It was like the click, you know, like a little, like a little click. Robbing the gas station with Corey and Steli made Joel feel like he was a part of something, like he belonged. A lot of times I went to school, my friends were very, very few. You know, kids can be cruel. You don't get a lot of friends when you don't have the nice tennis shoes or if you're kind of smelly when you come to school, your clothes are not washed, your hair is not cut. So that's one of the reasons why I really hung with those guys. And it's almost like when I started getting in trouble, it was because of the guys who were troublemakers. They were the ones who kind of like accepted me. We all want to belong. I think one of the things humans want the most is to belong, to matter, to be accepted, to be loved. Denise Sherrington is a psychiatrist, originally from Jamaica. She works in public health here in New Orleans. Some people call me the community psychiatrist. What I hear in this young man is just the absence of adults in his life who guided him. And so he finds a family on the streets. As I heard someone say, if we don't take care of our kids, the streets will take care of them. And that's perhaps the first place that they feel they belong and that they matter. At this point in Joel's young life, he already seemed headed toward either becoming a career criminal or ending up dead. His parents split when he was three, leaving his mom a single parent and Joel's six older siblings in charge of watching him. It's also when Joel's brothers started getting arrested. My mom worked a lot, so she had to leave all those responsibilities on them. And while she was working, one of the older brothers, they were always getting in trouble. If one was serving time, and, if, and it could have been a little bit of time, like three to six months, he was coming home, one went in. And what were they serving time for? Stealing cars, um, stealing rims off of people's cars. And they even went to jail for selling drugs. But so your mom like has sons that she knows are in and out of prison, mm -hmm. and she's putting them in charge of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yep. And in her defense, she worked a lot. Yeah, when you hear people, where, where are the parents? They're often working three jobs. Like, that's where they are, trying to survive in what is a very difficult economic environment for some people. Derwin Bunton, defender of many teenagers involved in the criminal legal system. Passing your kids around or hoping they're taking care of themselves and not getting in trouble, that is hard. Like, that is super hard. And so the outcomes are more predictably bad than they are good because the inputs are more predictably bad than they are good. There's such inequity. We are back to poverty and inequity. Children do not choose to be criminals. They usually steal because there's something absent. Think of the things children need. Beautiful playgrounds, warm, nurturing schools, summer camp, after school, food, enough food to fill their bellies. Some kids, a lot of kids, don't get much of that. We have disinvested in them. There are no investments in these folks. There's also this idea that some kids, almost always black and brown kids, are not only dangerous, but irredeemable. In the summer of 2018, police arrested five kids in my New Orleans neighborhood, a 15-year-old, two 14-year-olds, and two 9-year-olds. Among other things, they stole $500 from a business. Here's the owner. And it looked like to me that there's nothing is going to correct these people. They're just, some of them are just born bad. Dr. Shervington says no one's born bad. It's circumstances that create bad behavior. What you show a kid reflects how you think about them. So if they're growing up in blight and they don't have access to healthy foods, that's how they're going to feel about themselves for the most part, and that's how they're going to treat us. We can't take a bunch of things away from people and then throw roadblocks in their way and then say, get over it. Life isn't always fair, that's true. But it ain't the same kind of unfair for everybody. There were times where I tried to do something other than the things that I was doing that, that put me in a juvenile prison. Joelle tried football, basketball, drumming. Most beloved was fishing. But each time, instead of being accepted or encouraged, he got smacked down. I think if I would have had someone pull me to the side and say, hey man, I'm gonna teach you how to be a fisherman, oh, they would have had me. They would have had me. It, it was to the point where when we had career day and they tell you to come to school dressed accordingly for career day. You know, I had no idea that you were supposed to come dressed with a professional attire. So I came dressed like I was going fishing. I caught the bus from uptown to downtown with some rubber boots on, some clothes that you put on when you go fishing, a fishing pole. Look, when I got in the classroom, the lady, Miss Pitts, told me, she said, Mr. Ware, stand up. <laughs> she said, you do know when you Come dress for career day. You don't dress as if you are at work. You come dressed in a suit, shirt and pants, and a tie. And you tell us what it is you want to become. And uh, class kind of chuckled a little bit, you know. This is when I started cutting class. When I lady did that, oh, man. I left and uh, hooked up with some guys that was cutting class. Someone was fishing or bringing in houses. But that day, I remember that day, I thought I was doing the right thing. You have no idea how I got, I got dressed, excited. Oh, man. 
Because when they say career day, I'm thinking I want to be a fisherman. I would tell everybody that. He liked fishing. He just needed a little something more. Just and one, one adult who could have taken him fishing would have probably saved him from this experience. Joel continued learning, mainly from older kids, like how to be a lookout. They called it watching the bus. The correct way to pat someone down. You gotta make sure you pat and feel. Don't be scared to feel their private parts because it's gonna save your life. Because if you got something, you're gonna feel it. It was like you were in robbery school. Right, exactly. By the time Joel was 12, he was a pretty confident thief. I'm very aggressive now. I think I know what I'm doing. Aggressive and reckless. One time, Joel and a friend staked out a guy with dreadlocks at an ATM. I had the gun out. I pointed the gun at him. A 9 millimeter he'd stolen from a pawn shop. I had no bullets in the gun. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to really, really sell it, you know? The guy looked at this kid, Joel, and gave him the scariest look he could muster. He looked at me really, really scary. And I said, man, give me everything. Just drop it right there. You can go that way, you know? And the guy was like, she's looking crazy, his eyes big. And I was like, man, I'm not playing with you. Put it right there, go. He put the money down, he walked. I grabbed it and we ran to the nearest bush and just sat down in the bush and just hid and just waited for a while. Cameras and everything right there, but it's at night. So I'm, I am, I was comfortable. I watched him and it's like, I knew when to go to him, how long it should have taken and which way he needed to go so we can go the opposite way. Well, it's hard to communicate to people, folks who may not be in the work or in the game, in quotes, is understanding the rules. You try and figure out, okay, where can I be successful? And when you're young, your boundaries are, are just different. Part of it is adolescent development, your ability to appreciate danger, your impulsiveness, it changes your calculus on what you do when you're looking to make it or succeed or just survive. And so a lot of our kids get into these sort of dangerous situations because of their perceived ability to know the rules. Rules on the street are, this is easy money. Kids learn that. If you got a gun, folks just give you the money. I had a lot of friends with the story of the person who said, give me all your money. And they said, I don't have any money. And the kid is like, really? And they're like, no, I don't. And they're like, oh, man. And they take off running, <laughs> right? Because things fell apart. When you don't give me the money, that's the end of the game. I got to run away. It's time for me to go. <laughs> and it's terrifying in that moment when you've got a gun in your face. But from the kid's perspective, you were never in danger. The law treats that kid like we need to, to hide him or her under a rock somewhere for our safety. Robbing people gets to be like a habit for Joel. When he leaves his house on the way to wherever, he robs someone. It's almost like I was living two lives. Although I was committing those crimes, I was still, I was still a kid. Into video games, going to see his second movie ever, Jurassic Park. And it's around this time that Joel robs a drug dealer. I'm 13 now, and I'm selling crack. 
Kids commit horrible crimes, not just selling drugs, also murder, rape. But people who work with children in the criminal legal system say it doesn't mean they're super predators. The thing that teenagers have, what young people have, more than anything, is bad judgment. They've got a ton of it. That's not who they are going to be. That is a developmental space they're in, in a context that may not be all that supportive. We need to be careful to, while at the same time holding young people accountable, don't criminalize being a kid. You know, not every fight is a battery. Not every theft requires prosecution. It sounds weird, but the path of least resistance for a lot of this is jail. It is just real easy to put someone in jail. Angola, when I was one, 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 they booked me for shooting that gun, 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 way down yonder on that farm, picking that cotton all day long. Angola, when I was one, one, one. Well, my name is Calvin Duncan. I spent 28 and a half years in prison before the Innocent Project secured my release. While in prison, um, a group of us, we would sit down and counsel each other and try to figure out what went wrong in our lives. You know, we all were innocent to the world, did well in school as kids until a certain age, like in my case, when I turned 14, it looked like things just went crazy. But prior to that, as kids, we said things that we heard. We heard a lot about Angola. And so there was a song that we used to sing. We concluded that it was our nursery rhyme. We would go around, each one of us had a number. And we would just sit on the project steps and, and sing this song. And what we concluded in prison was that unknowingly, we was conditioning our minds as kids not to succeed in school, not to be Boy Scouts, not to be any professional doctors. We was conditioning our mind unknowingly to go to prison. And the sad thing about it was that we wind up, all of us wind up in prison, whether for stuff that we did and stuff that we didn't do. Then somebody else would say, when I was five, 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 they booked me for shooting that job. Job, job, job. Way down yonder on that farm, picking that cotton all day long, Angola. And we would go on and on and on. Children grow up and do what their world shows them. My name is Catherine Mattis. I am the director of the Tulane Law School Criminal Justice Clinic. I represent adults, but I represent many adults who were incarcerated since they were adolescents. When you have children in a community who are singing a song from the time they're very little about being incarcerated, and when you grow up in a world where the adults are incarcerated and your family members are incarcerated and you're singing playground songs about being Angola-bound, it's hard to imagine that they'd end up any place other than Angola. It's not desirable. It's not where they want to be. It's just inevitable.
When we started off incarcerating more and more people, what we did is we destroyed the communities in which the children are growing up in. We know from social studies that when we incarcerate more people in a particular neighborhood, we actually increase crime rather than decrease it. And that makes sense when you think that we're disrupting that community. We're taking the economic sources away from the households. And I think that's one of the issues about our high rates of incarceration, is you are making their home environments unstable. And that is so disruptive for children. Children want routine. They want predictability. They want the security and safety of knowing that the grown-ups in their life are going to continue to be there. By the time he's 14, Joel's buying weed in order to resell it. But one deal doesn't go right. Joel never gets the drugs. Weeks go by, and he gets angrier and angrier. One day, he grabs his gun and goes to confront his supplier, a middle-aged white guy. They get into a fight. And he starts to run. I start to shoot at him. I don't hit him. I just shoot him three times. He's freaking out because police cars are all over, just like that. I mean, just like that. Joel runs under a house. The police are all around, surrounding him. He's 14, and this is where his criminal life ends. And I remember just trying to stay quiet. And I was breathing really hard, nervous. I was scared. Look, I had never been so scared doing these things I've done. This time I was really scared. I knew that this was something serious. And although I knew it was serious, I'm still worrying about my mama finding out. That's the crazy part. I'm like, man, my mama can't find this out. She can't find this out. Eventually, Joel comes out from under the house, and he says the police start beating on him. Joel's brother tries to intervene. And I remember hearing Tony hollering, what y'all beating him for, man? Y'all caught him already. And they threatened to put Tony in jail, so Tony got, got back. And they took me to the parish first, all in these parish prison, adults. And then when they found out I wasn't old enough to go there, they took me to second district. These guys at second district, they're slapping me around. I fall asleep, and I pow. They'll slap me in the head, and I, I nod off again, and one guy will pull the chair from under me. The police charged Joel with lots of things, including armed robbery. At 14, Joel could have been transferred to the adult jail and prosecuted as an adult. These days, that's what happens to most 15- and 16-year-old kids in New Orleans. But when Joel was arrested, under a different DA, most were prosecuted in the juvenile system, a system designed for kids. So in this way, he was lucky. His juvenile court judge was Lawrence Lagarde. He took his glasses off, he set them down, and he put them back on, he took them off, and then he finally spoke. He said, I'm going to send you away to your 21st birthday. He was 14, so seven years. I served juvenile life. A year after Joel was locked up, his older brother David, the one who taught him how to use the lawnmower, was shot and died. Judge Lagarde didn't let Joel go to the funeral. He thought Joel would try to escape and retaliate, which Joel now admits was probably true. At first, Joel was really angry. But after the anger passed, things started to shift for him. I started looking at everything different. I had just lost a brother of mine who was the closest thing to me as a father. I accepted the fact that I had time. I probably wasn't going to go nowhere until I was 21. And... If there was going to be anything that was going to be come of me in that place, I had to just do my time. So Joel found a way to kind of beam himself back to before, to when he was a little kid. I wanted to feel free. 
while I was incarcerated, if that makes any sense. So I started cutting grass and grass became really, really exciting to me because I did it when I was young. Was it that it reminded you of being a kid? Is that oh, why? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it made me feel free. It reminded me of the, I tell people all the time, man, I had a really, really, really enjoyable childhood. If I could ever go back to any part of my life in the past, I would definitely go back to my childhood. How old? Three. The age he was when his parents split up. I'd go back to three and start. And would you do something differently? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd play more. I'd play in that yard more. Like the times that uh, I, I ventured out and you know, started hanging out with the, with the bad guys, there was enough stuff in the yard for me to do. I mean, that's like a therapist's dream. The childhood pleasure now is what saves him as an adult. Dr. Denise Shervington. Cutting grass is, you have to be very present and you're usually you with yourself. There's something there that allows him to be more meditative and quiet with himself and think about how he's thinking and how he's feeling. But we shouldn't have to incarcerate people to get that. I didn't want to do anything else but cut grass. But I didn't have a GED, so they made me cut it half a day and go to school the other half. I passed the GED my first time by the skin of my teeth. And it was strictly just to work. When I tell you I fold it up and put it in the locker, it still has the crease to this day. I didn't know the value of it right there because the value was work. And, and what kind of work did you do? I was cutting grass. I was cutting grass. <laughs> I've always cut grass the whole time I was there. And they wanted me to because I was good at it. Joel spent six years cutting grass. He was released when he was 21. I had no idea what I was going to do. I just know that I didn't want to go back to jail, right? Like, you had been so good, though, at being a criminal. Yeah. But that was gone from you already? That was gone. Like, when I was incarcerated, I heard guys tell me their charges that I couldn't believe they had. I was like, well, I've done some really bad things, but I never would have thought of doing nothing like that. It was a culture shock for me, okay? You're around, I call it different spirits. You're around all these guys with these different charges. When I left, I knew that was that. It wasn't going to be nothing else. Because Joel had served juvenile life, he didn't have a record to hang over his head. He wanted his life to be different. He enrolled in college outside of New Orleans, graduated, and started working with kids who'd been like him. This is how he met social worker Rebecca Kendig and attorney Derwin Bunton. I met Joel Ware when we hired him to work at the Youth Empowerment Project. He was hired as one of our youth advocates for the Juvenile Justice Project. Like not only was he a great youth advocate for the kids, but he's a great representative for your agency. He met with our kids who were incarcerated. He helped build cases for early release. And then while he was a youth advocate, he applied for and completed his master's degree in social work. He is very, very driven. It was while working for Youth Empowerment Project that Joel ended up back in Judge Lagarde's courtroom, this time as a social worker. Lagarde was old by then. He didn't quite recognize Joel. Plus, he changed a lot. He was an adult now. If you could go back and play more, could you have just gone in a totally different trajectory? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What would it have taken? I think um, just a little bit more attention from uh, possibly David or any of the other brothers. 
It definitely needed to be a brother. It's something about that male to male. I think if one of my brothers or someone in the neighborhood, because if it's not come from the house, it could be someone in the neighborhood. That's, that, that's where that statement comes from. It takes a village. By his own accounts, Joel was a really dangerous kid. I asked him what he thinks about the words people use to talk about kids like he was. Kids who commit crimes. Predator. Monster. Born bad. Beyond. Yeah. Beyond redemption. Well, you can't say that, you know, especially if the age is considered teenage, young adult. They're still children. Even with all the crimes they commit, they're still children. When do you cut off children's age just because of a crime? You can't, you can't do that, you know? I think that would be inhumane. Even if the crime is so serious, they're still growing, you know, mentally and physically. They may have been exposed to some things where they have developed skills in a really wrong way. And do you think that, that those young people are beyond changing? No, I don't think that. I don't think that. I wouldn't count them out. And Prison's editors are the mighty Katie Rechtal and Vicki Merrick. Our theme music and the song you're listening to right now are by Greg Schatz. Helen Gillet composed original music for this episode. Special thanks to Ramona Fernandez of the Loyola Law Clinic for reading those Supreme Court opinions, and to David Summerstein, Laura Starcheski, and the Rauschenberg Foundation. Learn more about the show at imprisoned.org. I'm Eve Abrams. This is Unprisoned. Unprisoned.